0: Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Dissident. I'm your host, Samuel Claiborne. I have already used other racial epithets in my previous episodes to make points, but have studiously avoided using the N-word because it is, for some odd reason, held by many to exist alone among all epithets in a special sacrosanct place of never being allowed to be spoken by a non-black person. That practice ends for me today. I will not use the word flagrantly, but I will use it if and when appropriate, and I will continue to question why it is the only epithet suffering this linguistic apartheid. If you feel you are unable or unwilling to hear me out on this, I suggest you skip this episode. It was the fall of 1983. I was in a band called Things Fall Apart, named both for the line in a Yeats poem and for the Chinua Achebe novel of the same name, inspired by that same line of poetry. The band consisted of my stepbrother Jan Stacy, a good friend Peter Ford, and myself. I also operated a small recording and rehearsal space in the infamous Music Building on 8th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. The band was just starting to hit its stride, playing places like CBGB's regularly, sometimes even opening for pretty famous bands. It was a heady time. I was 23, newly married, with a promising career in computers just taking off, and in the most inspiring band of my lifetime. In only a few short years, Jan would be dead from AIDS, and I'd be, for a time, a quadriplegic. It would be nine years before I'd play guitar again, but that's a tale for another day. In late September, Jan came into rehearsal one day looking absolutely furious. Recently, a 25-year-old, black, 135-pound, unarmed graffiti artist studying at Brooklyn's Pratt Institute Named Michael Stewart, had been beaten to death by New York City Transit Police. And the medical examiner, Elliot Gross, had just released a whitewash autopsy report exonerating the police completely. The murder had been horrific. 27 students in their nearby dormitory had heard Michael Stewart wailing, screaming, and pleading for his life as he was essentially lynched by a bunch of police officers. And if Gross's report held, it looked like they were going to face no consequences for their horrific crime. And in the end, they didn't. All were eventually acquitted of the charges of negligent homicide and perjury. But this was the morning after the release of Gross's first autopsy report, one that utterly whitewashed what had happened to Michael Stewart and vastly downplayed the grievous damage done to his body by these officers. Jan read the coverage of the report and then stayed up most of the night writing a song for Michael Stewart, a song of anguish and outrage at what had been done to him, the lack of justice and accountability, and the white apathy he saw all around him regarding Michael's brutal murder. It's ironic that if he wrote such a song today, some people in the black community would accuse him of profiting off of black suffering, rather than simple empathy. I find This attitude that a white person feeling empathy for the suffering of a black person is impossible, and that their coverage or creating art based on the suffering of a black person can only be for gain, to be one of the most sad and emotionally impoverished viewpoints I've ever heard. But that is also a topic for another day. So he played and sang the song for us. It contained the N-word, used once, in the context of a bored white yuppie bemoaning all the fuss about, quote, one dead nigger on a train, unquote. We were shocked, and not shocked. Yes, this was a word we never used. We didn't indulge in racial jokes, except when I, a Jew, made fun of Jews, or I, also a wasp, made fun of uptight wasps. So the word was shocking. Shocking. But it was there to be shocking, and we also understood that. It was there to display the shocking apathy a lot of white people felt towards the suffering of black people, and how that underlined a deeper issue, that being that many white people utterly dehumanize black people. I'm going to read you the lyrics of the song in their entirety, and then the song will play in its entirety, and then I'll speak more about it and the N-word. I ask that any black person or any other person, for that matter, who thinks that white people should never, under any circumstances, use this word, listen to the lyrics, listen to the song, and reconsider. I have little doubt you will be able to see the merit for the use of this word by a white man in this context. And forgive me if I get choked up. These lyrics mean a lot to me. They speak to a yearning inside me for connection rather than alienation. A yearning for an end to this kind of racial hatred. And they were written by a man I loved, whose cruel death long ago still affects me deeply. Out late, walking through the city, feeling young, cool, and pretty now. Looks like you're finally going to get a break. Feel good, want to celebrate. Want to celebrate. You walk down in the subway. You draw a picture on the wall. Transit cops bit into you like piranhas. An hour later, you are dying in a coma. Chorus, who's to blame? Michael Stewart's dead and somebody must pay for it. But you know the rules. If you're a cop, those at the top will let you kill and get away with it. No, no, no. No, no, no. Elliot Gross, the medical examiner, held a conference to end the investigation. After dissecting the body, I find he died of a heart condition. Chorus again, and then the bridge. Hey, 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 what I say? It's really kind of strange, all this fuss about one dead nigger on a train. I mean, really, really. So this is a song from Michael Stewart, who died before he knew it. Blood on his chest, blood on his face, bones broke all over the place. So don't walk too proud, don't you laugh or sing too loud. But most of all, don't try to put beauty on the filthy walls of a crumbling city property. Because you might be dead, a hole in your chest, a hole in your head, and no one will say that they saw it any other than the official way. Because you might be dead, blood on your chest and blood on your head, and no one will say that they saw it any other than the official way. No, no, no. No, no, no. No. Yeah! The current woke orthodoxy asks you to take the maxim that only black people can use the n-word under any circumstances as holy writ. I am asking you to deny this orthodoxy and see that even the worst words have their place and should never be forbidden, because nuance and intent are everything. Clearly the intent of the use of the word in this song is to decry injustice, racism, and dehumanization, not to support them. And if a white artist is using the word for that purpose, it is not only legitimate, it is useful. This is what art is for, to engender deep emotions, sometimes utilizing shocking words and imagery. And political art tries to leverage that effect to engender change through people's hearts and, thence, their minds. I will hasten to add that the woman I call my second mother, a black Jamaican woman aptly named Essie Good, knew Michael Stewart's mother. They went to church together at a Baptist church in Brooklyn's Bed-Stuy neighborhood. Once we finished the song, I played it for Essie, who was so touched by it she'd burst into tears. She asked me if she could take the cassette to Michael's mother, Carrie, which she did. Months later, I got a lovely note from Carrie thanking us for the song. Clearly she and Essie understood the power of Jan's selective use of that word. All racial epithets can be used in more than one way. They can be used to insult and denigrate, they can be used ironically, and they can be used as citations, examples of another person's bigotry. There is only one racial or ethnic epithet we dare not speak, and that is the N-word. Oddly enough, growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you actually heard this word on TV, as a citation, as a way of pointing out that a character was, indeed, a racist pig. It was heard on the Jeffersons, and all in the family. It was heard in movies, too. The distinction between showing someone's racism and actually saying something racist was well understood and accepted by white people in general, by people of color in general, and most importantly, by black people in general. But somehow, in the intervening years, this single word has become impossible to say. White people are told over and over by some in the black community that they may not say it under any circumstances. This is curious to me. People are allowed to say kike, spick, wop, mick, towelhead, all sorts of disgusting things, at least when using them to point out systemic racism and bigotry, but the n-word and this word alone is totally verboten. Why is that, exactly? What does this say about the proponents of such censoriousness? It seems to imply that they think that black people cannot differentiate the difference between the use of a word used to denigrate and cause offense and the use of the same word as a citation, as an example of someone else's racism. What, Latinos and Jews and Asians can stand the use of slurs normally used against them in the proper context, but black people are either too stupid to differentiate the type of use or too fragile to stand it? To me, this insistence of fragility and or the inability to understand nuance is truly denigrating of black people. It treats them as children. It's bloody infantilizing. It's also highly ironic, given that those movies and TV shows in the past used the word to great effect, and gee, at the time, black people got why it was being used and seemed fine with it. So, as we careen towards a nuance-free future where true meaning and intent are occluded by faux fragility and outrage, codified through simplistic orthodoxy, I once again plead for a U-turn. As fucked up as the 70s, 80s, and 90s were for people of color, at least they were not self-identifying as either too fragile or too stupid to discern the intent of a word's use. What does it say that I can bridle at the term kike, but not faint dead away at its use pejoratively by some bigoted asshole, and have no trouble at all when it's used ironically when referencing said bigot? Not much, actually, except that I'm a grown-up who can take verbal slights and make distinctions of intent. But, oh, some would say, you're white." Again, as part of the ruling tribe, some would think that my situation perforce renders me incapable of comparison. This again is the flatland of power dynamics, a world where it's assumed that people of different backgrounds and circumstances are incapable of true empathy for those outside of their tribe, particularly if their tribe wields a lot of power. Not only do I strenuously object to this because I find it simplistic, but also because to adopt it is to adopt a hopeless stance, to internalize the repugnant belief that we really are so different from each other, that we cannot feel our interconnectedness, cannot find love for each other, cannot hold each other in our hearts. I refuse to believe something so disheartening and distressing as it would render me powerless as a human being, as a healer, and as an artist and thinker. But okay, let's go there. I'm white, so I can't understand, can't empathize, will never be qualified to have a meaningful opinion on this." Well, I could speak of Asians and Latinos and Native Americans who in general do not seem to suffer from this nuance-free attitude towards slurs about them used in an ironic context. But oh, I don't know, some hair-splitter can point out that they weren't brought here as slaves, or maybe don't suffer as much per capita poverty, so they too have no right to render judgment. Then I could up the ante and point out that an entire cadre of black intellectuals object to this segregation of the n-word from all other words, and, more to the point, to the entire concept of black fragility. If there's one thing I've learned over the years is that there is no single strain of thought within a religious or ethnic group. I know black people who support reparations to individuals and others who agree with me that reparations would be much better spent if used to uplift black schools and education to support measures to decriminalize all drugs and to restore the electoral franchise to felons. I know black people like Essie, like Michael Stewart's mother Carrie, who totally understood and supported the use of the N-word in a context like our song did. Contrary to what a lot of politically correct black people and their multicultural allies on the left would have themselves and us believe, there's quite a lot of diversity in contemporary American black thought. This, like a lot of thought on many hot-button identity politics issues, seems to have a generational component. Lots of older folks on one side of these issues, younger people on the other. The young can make the facile claim that any of us on this side of a given issue, the side I would hasten to add, that in general stridently objects to the self-victimization stance of performative fragility and the odious, dangerous wave of censorship and abuse such as JK Rowling has suffered from the left as out-of-touch dinosaurs. Some of my age could counter with the equally facile, equally derogatory opinion that the young simply cannot embrace nuance of any kind that their black-and-white-you're-with-us-or-you're-against-us attitude is simplistic and intellectually bankrupt. I reject both of these assertions. While they may apply to individuals, I do, after all, know some old bigoted judgmental dinosaurs and I know some knee-jerk nuance-free young zealots. I refuse to accept this narrative, yet another one of separation. Moreover, I've met young people who understand that intersectionality is complex, who do understand that epithets can be used for different reasons, and who are quite serious about fighting against censorship and, therefore, for free expression. And I've met some older folks who've adopted the zealotry, the orthodoxy of the new censorious anti-freedom segment of the left that's become the noisiest. They brook no discussion of their tenets of belief. For them, they are wholly writ. Whereas, for me, there is no such thing, except maybe that speech and creative expression are a gift of nature, or God-Goddess if you prefer, and must remain unfettered. It does fascinate me how similar the forces for censorship on the left and the right sound, just as it's striking how much utterances of the Taliban echo so completely those of white Christian fundamentalists. In fact, it's not just utterances, their iconography is the same. Look at MAGA postings and Evangelical Christian postings on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and compare them to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Taliban imagery. In all cases, it's overwhelmingly guns, flags, and holy books, be they Bibles or Qurans. And the revolutionary cadres of China's cultural revolution and Cambodia's Khmer Rouge resemble recent Christian book burners in the Deep South to a remarkable extent as well. This has led me to the conclusion that there are fundamentally, no pun intended, two types of people in the world. Those that have a deep-seated need to have others believe what they believe and to punish and or suppress those that don't, and those who have no problem with differences of belief and opinion. It seems to me that what I'd call the fundamentalist urge knows no political, ethnic, national, or sociological bounds. People from all walks of life tend to either care deeply that only their worldview is espoused and reinforced, and that competing or contrasting views should be censored, or they don't. What drives this? Can I find a way to have compassion for these people? Can these people change? Do they need to? I think this streak of insularity to other worldviews is predicated upon fear. I think that for some, whether they be an Isis zealot or a Southern Baptist one, there is a fear of the unpredictability, the capricious nature of reality, that can only be assuaged by deep convictions, by faith. This need not be religious faith. I knew a young member of the Spartacist League who basically suppressed his own brilliant intellect and became a factory worker because of the tenets of his belief system. Religion is not the key. The need to believe in a structure that promises order, predictability, and a better future, or in some cases a return to a nostalgically reimagined past, is all that matters. How do we deal with people who want to murder us or muzzle us merely because we disagree with them? I'm probably the world's worst person to ask, as I am an argumentative, opinionated, arrogant bastard at times, if arrogance is to be defined as one who possesses strong opinions. But I am starting to get inklings, and although they may bear fruit, and are in some ways hopeful, they are also somewhat disconcerting. Darren Brown made a TV show called Sacrifice, wherein he basically psychologically manipulated someone who felt antipathy to illegal Mexicans in the US to be willing to take a bullet for an illegal he didn't know, whom he thought was about to be murdered. This, like the episode of the documentary series 30 Days wherein a homophobic man from a red state lived with two gay men in San Francisco's Castro district and came to love and admire them, shows me that empathy can be engendered, or in Brown's case, actively engineered. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true, and Brown has a new show out that indeed sets out to do the opposite. It seeks to engineer someone's emotions and responses to peer pressure in order to compel them to commit a murder that, although simulated, appears real to the person being asked to commit it. We see propaganda that dehumanizes others, renders them into cardboard cutouts who feel no pain, have no emotions in humanity, and are therefore not worthy of respect or decency or even maybe life every day. And not just by white people. I've seen art and writing by all kinds of people that dehumanizes all kinds of other people of various races, creeds, and colors. This is how most wars work. One need only look at the anti-Japanese iconography of World War II and how it metastasized into the completely unjustifiable and unforgivable internment of American citizens of Japanese ancestry during that war to see it at work. Images of hook-nosed Jews and Arabs, big-lipped, moon-eyed black people, slit-eyed, alien-looking Chinese have suffused our culture for hundreds of years. Anti-empathetic manipulation works because it works through the emotions, not the intellect. Evil bastards like Nazi propagandists Joseph Goebbels and Lenny Reifenstahl knew this and used it to powerful horrific effect. But clearly, pro empathetic manipulation works as well, as Martin Luther King and other leaders of the nonviolent branch of the civil rights movement surely knew when they formulated their plans to fight for civil rights in a way that allowed white people to see these black people as brutalized humans, not some dark alien other. So, this emotional content, which I am terming manipulation here, can be used for good or evil. At the moment, Vladimir Putin is trying to use it by calling his enemies neo-Nazis and drug addicts. Donald Trump is trying to use it by dog-whistling the fact that the prosecutors who are investigating him are black, essentially projecting his and his base's own bigotry upon them by calling them racists. And alas, the emotional manipulation that outrages us, angers us against others, is the most profitable of all. Whether it's CNN or Fox, if you want to make money, you can make piles of it by playing on people's fears of their differences with others, rather than their shared humanity. Our culture has incentivized divisive speech and the internet has democratized it and monetized it ever the more so. This is true for my podcast as well. If I get enough listenership to be on the radar at all and say something controversial, I am far more likely to get media coverage and therefore more listeners. I don't really have to worry about this because my listenership is small, and also because I seem to hold contrarian and controversial views as a matter of course. In other words, just by speaking my truth, I am deemed controversial. But my goal is to fight for what I see as justice, and yes, to foster empathy when I think I have a shot at it. I believe that empathy can be taught through psychodramatic techniques of role reversal, having one person take on the role of another. Is this manipulation, as I call it? I think so. You're creating an artificial, staged dynamic wherein someone, if not forced, is certainly encouraged through social pressure to walk in another's shoes. But is this type of psychodramatic training education or inculcation? I think it depends on how it's done. Is it coercive? Does it demand that you come to a preordained conclusion that is printed right there in the curriculum notes? Or does it merely give you the opportunity to feel what another person is feeling, letting you change, or not, as the case may be? I support the latter approach, not the former. How to incentivize it is another matter. If it bleeds, it leads, goes the old newspaper saying, which might be expanded to if it pisses off one segment of the population against the other, it leads. Separation sells. I know we've got wars, pollution, global warming, bigotry and genocide going on right now. Maybe finding a way to pay for the dissemination of empathy training into our grade schools seems wrong-headed. something that shouldn't be prioritized. This seems especially true at a time when many conservative, white, straight people appear to want to censor any book or film that could possibly let one of their kids walk in the shoes of a black, Latino, Asian or LGBTQIA person. But I submit to you that you cannot effectively deal with these other issues without an evolutionary leap in our empathetic capacities. And because biological evolution is slow, unwieldy, and unpredictable, this must become, to use an unfortunate term, a cultural revolution. I honestly believe that most, not all of the MAGA crowd, could be taught to see the humanity of illegals from south of the border and to feel outrage rather than glee when they see those families torn apart and their children put into cages. I honestly believe that many, though not all, of the most racist white and black and Latino and Asian people could change their views if educated properly. I'm not sure we can solve climate change, pollution, genocide, homophobia, racism, sexism, and all the other isms until we can find more common ground, more empathy. And that's going to take money and energy. Any billionaires out there with too much cash lying around? Instead of building gigantic phalluses to blast into space or sail the seven seas, perhaps they could spare some loose change to revolutionize humanity and usher in the one shift that may save us. And if anyone can figure out a way to monetize and incentivize empathy and kindness, please give me a shout. I am all ears. As always, thanks for listening, and be good to your neighbor. The music for today's podcast is an assortment of odds and sods by the band things fall apart most are not currently available but you can find our song michael stewart for free on the soundcloud music platform just go to soundcloud.com search for samuel claiborne and you'll find it as well as a bunch of other stuff from many genres by things fall apart And Loons in the Monastery, two bands I've been in, as well as a lot of my solo work in rock, punk, experimental, and classical genres. For those that care about such things, the music and lyrics for Michael Stewart were written by my late stepbrother, Jan Stacy, May He Rest in Power, who also sang lead and played drums on the track. Peter Ford played bass and sang backup, and I played guitar and keyboards and sang backup and engineered the track. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media.